So welcome, Lisa. Glad oh, you're here. Thank you, Dr. Howard. He's being very, very humble. What he didn't tell you is, well, first of all, I've taken the same class twice, and um, and I'm going to keep blowing sunshine his way because he's still grading me. She did pass but, it the first time, <laughs> just so you know. Passed it the first time, but the second day of my first class with Dr. Howard and Dr. Payne, I couldn't even get up and leave the room. And you know, we're in class for like nine hours a day in the doctoral intensives. But I just, I, I, I felt like my heart had been wrecked in the most wonderful way. And I, I just couldn't stop crying. And Dr. Howard came over after a while. I think he was wondering why I wasn't in the counseling doctorate since I was so emotional. But I explained to him that I, I've been walking with Jesus. I'm 57. I met Jesus when I was five years old. My dad left us. And it was maybe a couple of weeks after my father left our family. Um, I grew up half Baptist. My mom's Baptist. My dad's Assembly of God. So I'm Bapticostal, which I told the morning service means that I love to dance during worship, but I have no rhythm. But, um, but anyway, I was in this little Baptist church with my mom and just devastated that my father had left us. And like most children, I assumed it must be at least partly my fault. I thought, you know, maybe if I used my inside voice more or was prettier, better or something, Dad wouldn't have walked away. And I can almost remember his whole sermon, even though this would have been 1968, 9. Um, but Brother Jimmy talked about how our Heavenly Father is a God who doesn't leave his children. And they sang, any of y'all grew up Baptist? Any of y'all seen the stories flannelgraphed? We've got two who will still admit it. Um, but... <laughs> They used to sing this song, Just As I Am. Hazel, you remember Just As I Am? And they would sing it, Coco. They'd sing it like 15 times until finally you had to go forward. And and I, I walked forward, and I just told this pastor, I was itty-bitty, and I just said, I, I want to know God because I want a dad who who won't leave. And so I've been walking with the Lord for a long, long time. I've been in vocational ministry for over 20 years. I almost got kicked out because I used to be on staff at Focus on the Family and that was back when you couldn't wear open-toed shoes because the line between your big toe and your little toe, they told me, was reminiscent of cleavage. And um, I was like, y'all, if men are stumbling over my feet, we got a lot bigger problems here. But I told Dr. Howard, in all these years of being in ministry, going to seminary for a master's, there was always a secret corner of my heart where I wasn't really sure that um, a God that perfect and holy and sovereign and kind could actually delight in a woman like me because there are so many mistakes in my backstory, a lot of molestation in my backstory. And so I could teach to y'all and I could memorize big words from smart guys like Dr. Howard, but there was just this place in me that never quite felt like I was good enough to share the gospel, much less that the God who breathed this into existence would sing love songs over me. I kind of secretly imagined him as a unibrowed librarian, always a little bit disappointed in me, you know, carrying a 50-pound Bible, just waiting to smack me over the head when I stepped out of line once again. And something about the gift God has given Dr. Howard, because I've sat under a lot of other smart men and women, but God used him to make me see the love of God bigger. And I sat in that class in Denver Seminary last summer, and I just wept. And all I could explain to Dr. Howard was, it's true. It's true. What I always hoped 
of God's grace and mercy, and I would preach it to others, but not really apply it to my own heart. He really is that kind, isn't he? My mind can't even conceive of how great the compassion of our God is. And so um, I am indebted to your pastor, and I won't blow too much more sunshine his way, or I'll seem like such a brown noser, and I definitely won't pull up my pants because I have his and Nancy's faces tattooed on my calf. But I thought that would be weird, so I I decided not to wear shorts today. But um, just suffice it to say, it is more than an honor to get to be with y'all on this glorious Sunday. Before we dive into the text, would you hold hands with that saint next to you if you have already been quarantining with them? If you're sitting next to a stranger, um, just aim your hands at them. And would y'all pray for each other, pray that God would do something supernatural in our hearts and minds this afternoon, that he really would, through his Holy Spirit, just expand the topography of our hearts, that he would give us eyes that see bigger, more clearly who Jesus is as our Redeemer, not a punitive God, not a faraway existential thought, but that he's an up-close, personal Savior who longs to be in an intimate relationship with us. And we don't have to clean ourselves up before we launch ourselves into his arms. So would you pray that God would, if you already know Jesus, that he will help you see him more clearly this morning. If you thought you were coming to uh, just a really amazing jazz concert, we hope you'll stay. Um, I'll try to be short. Um, you can scoot your chairs all the way to the back, but we, we hope you'll stay. If you don't yet know this Messiah named Jesus, would you be courageous enough right now just to pray for yourself? You can pray something real simple like, God, if you're real, will you reveal yourself to me? Oh, God, how good it is to come together. I so look forward to the day that we can actually hug each other without masks on. But this, today, this is enough. This is a happy day. Oh, happy day, Jesus, that we're reminded that you washed our sins away, that we look at these mountains and we're reminded that even though you breathe this kind of beauty into existence, you also know us by name. So, Lord, give us, um, give us eyes to see, ears that would hear more loudly your love, hearts that would understand more fully who you are as our compassionate redeemer and who you've called us to be in light of the fact that while we were still sinners, you loved us. Thank you. We um, do not want to grow numb to the fact that it is still a privilege to gather together in worship and not have to worry about being arrested. And so we are grateful, so grateful for that, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We pray that even now the meditations of our hearts and my big fat mouth, Lord, that it would be a fragrant aroma to you. That it would smell good. We ask this for your glory, King Jesus, and all of God's people said, amen. I've got to tell you, when I was working at Focus on the Family, um, some ministry in Colorado Springs, I was always just kind of shocked that they allowed me to stay on staff there because I was not exactly, um, theologically, I'm super conservative, but I 
socially have always been just a, a little less so. And part of it is probably being single. Um, I'm 57, never been married. My husband is lost and won't stop to ask for directions. And so when I turned 40, I decided I was either, either going to get a husband or a Harley Davidson. And nobody I liked asked, so I brought the bike. Um, I didn't wear leather pants this morning because when I do, it sounds like ducks are being killed. But um, So I didn't always fit that super conservative paradigm at Focus. And when I decided to leave Focus to go to seminary so I'd be less of a heretic, I was like, man, I'm not going to see these people probably very often. I was moving back to Nashville, Tennessee. I'd lived there before. And I thought, I'm probably not going to get to come back to Colorado very often. So I was trying to say goodbye to as many saints as I could before I left the ministry. And one day, it was my last week on staff at Focus on the Family, I was walking out of the restroom back toward my office, and I ran into this gentleman that I didn't think I'd get to see before I moved to Tennessee because he traveled a great deal on behalf of Focus on the Family. And so I was excited to actually see him in person there in the hallway outside the restroom. And this guy's just a brilliant theologian, kind of like Dr. Howard, only not quite as fun. And and so we stopped there in the hallway, and he uh, he knew that I was leaving, and so he began to talk about God ordering my steps. And he was just speaking these words of life over me. It was really lovely except for one thing. He would not look at me as he was speaking to me. And I love making eye contact. You know, I love getting close to people. COVID has been hard because I love to just be all up in your personal space. But he would not look at me saying this wonderful blessing, but he was kind of staring off over the horizon of cubicles on our floor. And so I thought, you know, he's such a brainiac. He's probably just pondering something in Hebrew. So I kept scooting to try to get into his line of vision, but he just was resolute. He would not look at me. And so we finally said our goodbyes. He kind of blessed me, and then he turned and walked toward his office, and I turned to walk toward mine. And when I did, I felt this little draft. And I looked down and was horrified to see that I had accidentally, at Focus, women had to wear skirts. Um, I had accidentally turned my skirt into my my underwear um, in the restroom and didn't realize I had done it because we also had to wear hose. Sorry, gentlemen, this is going to get holy in just a second. We had to wear hose at Focus on the Family, and I always cheated because I hate hand pantyhose. I think they're from the devil. So I would wear thigh highs, which also cut off my circulation, so I couldn't feel um, at what straight of undress I was in in this huge ministry. And so there I stood in my thigh highs, realizing the reason Sam wouldn't look at me is he was absolutely traumatized by the sight of me standing there in, in what I shouldn't have been standing there and talking about the holy sovereignty of God. So... Despite Dr. Howard's very gracious introduction, I wanted to tell you the real truth. Um, I am a hot mess. And so if any good thing happens as we worship together today, we all know that it's because of God's goodness. Aren't you grateful that perfection is overrated? I'm so grateful we don't have to be perfect to be in relationship with God. He's such a kind God. If you brought your Bible, I see a few of you have it memorized, but if you brought your Bible... Turn to Luke chapter 13, where Dr. Howard just had us. I love Luke's gospel because Luke is the only known Gentile author of Holy Writ. In other words, Luke was an outsider. And I don't know about you, but I've often felt like an outsider in religious circles, that I just wasn't enough of something. And so I love the kindness in Luke's gospel. He wrote the gospel according to Luke. And then he wrote the Acts of the Apostles. And Dr. Howard will tell you he wrote those two together as a seamless document. 
So if you're one of those disciplined folks who reads through the Bible in a year, I would encourage you when you get to the end of Luke's gospel, vault over John, come back for John later, but go straight from the gospel of Luke to the Acts of the Apostles because it's kind of like Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back. You see this just beautiful redemptive symmetry. And Luke is nothing if not compassionate. Remember, he was a physician by trade. He's got this beautiful bedside manner. He also includes more stories about women who were religious outsiders in the first century. And this is one of my favorite stories in his good news account. Luke chapter 13, verse 10. Now he, Luke is speaking about Jesus. Now Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath or Shabbat, if you come from a Jewish background. And there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Another gospel account says she was bent over double. So most commentarians think she had a very serious case of spinal stenosis, bent over double, and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. And Dr. Howard emphasized this next part, but the ruler of the synagogue, so the big dog deacon, was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And that leader, that indignant leader, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord, Adonai, the Christ, answered him, you hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, if you have read this part of Luke's gospel account, you know that kind of the overarching theme is Luke keeps addressing religious leaders saying, y'all are missing the main point. You are so focused on looking spiritual that you've missed loving me and loving each other. You're missing the main point. This is not about religion. This is about a relationship. That's what you hear over and over and over again in this part of Luke's gospel. But this story, if you read between the lines, it has an even sweeter application that I think is especially pertinent in light of the the series you're in, a different kind of faith. Because there's a, a different kind of approach in this particular encounter in Luke chapter 13 involving this bent-over woman and Jesus, Emmanuel. You have to read the other gospel accounts and maybe even Josephus, some historical antiquity to find out this was not only Jesus preaching in a gospel. This is the last, I mean, preaching in a synagogue. This is the last time he preached publicly in a synagogue. After Luke 13, there are no more instances of Jesus preaching publicly in a synagogue. This is the last time he preaches in a synagogue prior to that first Easter Easter week. So this is a big deal. I told the morning service, this is like, because I'm from Nashville, this is like the very last song and the very last set of the George Strait Farewell Tour. I mean, this is it. This is Emmanuel's last public message. And then based on the way he greets this woman... This woman wasn't there at the beginning. She wasn't sitting on a back pew when he started his message. How many of y'all are under 40? (laughs) Pews are long wooden benches we used to sit on in church. I know y'all aren't familiar with those anymore, but she wasn't in one of those when Jesus started his message. She interrupted Emmanuel 
in his farewell sermon. Huge deal, especially given the fact that she's not supposed to be in that part of synagogue anyway. You remember during this ancient era of history, women are not allowed to be in the teaching side of church. So when men were studying Torah, she's not allowed to be in there. That's testosterone only. And then further still, this woman has an ongoing medical issue. And in Jewish culture during this time, if you had an ongoing medical condition, it was assumed that you also had a bad spiritual condition. It was assumed there was unconfessed sin in your life. Do you remember how the disciples themselves asked Jesus when they encountered a blind guy in the Gospel of John? Do you remember what they asked Jesus? Young talk back. Do you remember what they asked him? They said, who sinned? Who sinned, the blind dude or his parents? Because obviously there's something funky going on that he's blind. There has to be sin here. There was an idea that whatever you revealed in your natural body, it was a, it was a revelation of what was going on in your heart. So it was assumed if somebody had an ongoing medical condition, just like the woman with the issue of blood, that they were unclean in their spirit, oftentimes completely ostracized from normal culture. So this woman's not supposed to be in that part of synagogue because she's not a man. She's also not supposed to be in synagogue at all because she has a medical condition. And yet there she is interrupting Jesus in the very middle of his last public message. Why do you think she had that kind of audacious faith? Young talk back. I don't have hardly any Baptist left in me. She was desperate. That's it. She was absolutely desperate. And that's the different kind of faith I want to talk about briefly this morning. It's a desperate kind of faith, not a polite kind of faith. Not a faith that, that follows lines of propriety, like not wearing open-toed shoes because you might throw off some man with a foot fetish. Uh, a desperate, honest kind of faith. I think that's kind of the kind of different faith we're going to need to actually walk with our heads up in this next chapter of, of culture. Because all around, I see people dumbing themselves down instead of running hard toward Jesus. I think this woman was so sick and tired of being sick and tired, so sick of being bent over, so sick of not being able to hug her kids or watch the sunrise or watch the sunset or lie down comfortably, that she had gotten to the point in her story of going, if there is any hope for me, it lies with that man. It lies with the Lord Jesus Christ. So I know everybody is going to have a cow that I make a beeline for him because I'm not invited to the setting. But people's approval doesn't matter nearly as much to me as intimacy with Jesus. So I'm gunning toward Jesus. It's a desperate kind of faith. Our culture tells you that desperate is something that people who have minds don't do. And I'm like, "Mm, you haven't studied your Bibles, have you? Because God's people always had a different kind of desperate faith. God's people have always danced more for his pleasure than for the approval of culture. I would ten times rather Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant, than have a bunch of likes on social media. Hasn't always been that way. Man, there were years that I so wanted to fit in. I was um, had an abusive family of origin. And so by the time I was in high school, I was pretty broken. I was a good faker, so I could 
sing hymns with the best of them. I started teaching Bible studies when I was in high school. So I looked like I understood grace, but on the inside, I thought there is no stinking way a God like that could actually adore a woman like me. My first job out of undergrad was with a youth ministry, and one of the first things my boss said to me was, Lisa, men are the glory of God and women are the glory of men, and so I just want you to know that I'm going to pay you exactly half that of your male counterparts, or God will be disappointed with me. And if you have a problem with making less than half of the men you work with, then you don't have a gentle and quiet spirit. And he wasn't a bad man. He just didn't have great teaching. And so more and more as I got into my 20s, I just found myself bending over more and more. I thought in order to understand God, there's got to be a whole lot less of me. I couldn't imagine a God that actually wanted me to stand up straight. And then to compound all of that, I was single. And you know, the evangelical church tends to idolize families. And I so longed to be in a family of my own, but I was so broken that I was scared to death of intimacy. And so I I dated really abusive men, and God protected me from them. And the few good godly guys I dated, God protected them from me because I was hot mess on a stick. And so by the time I got to 40, I thought, I'm just never going to have my own family. So I'll just be kind of like one of those female missionaries. I'm just going to try to really sacrifice everything except carbs for Jesus. You know, I'm just going to live this kind of lonely life, wear a lot of turtlenecks, and, and I'm just going to do everything I can for the cause of Christ, thinking that the more miserable and lonely I was, the more honored God would be. Not remotely understanding we have a God who delights in us, a God who sings over us, a God who grins when he sees me walk in the room. I couldn't imagine a smiling God. In my 30s and 40s, I imagine God as a unibrowed librarian with a 40-pound Bible just waiting to whack me over the head when I stepped out of line. I um, later on in my 40s decided that maybe I would try to help with orphan care, and I didn't think I could adopt a child myself being single, and then I had a friend at church tell me that there was no way I could adopt a child because she said, Lisa, you've told us that there's molestation in your background and some abuse. And she said, you, I know you've been to counseling, but just in case you weren't fixed, you might unwittingly transfer the trauma you received as when you were a child onto a child of your own. So she said, I I just, I do not think you have the right to be a mother, but my encouragement would be for you to adopt a pet from the Nashville Humane Society because you're really good with animals. And y'all, I should have recognized you know, her voice is not congruent with God's word. God's word does not use shame as a motivational tool. But again, I, I didn't see God big enough. My, my vision was so blurred of how good God is. It took me seven more years to step into the adoption process. And only then I told an adoption representative that I believe that kids deserved a mama and a daddy. I still believe that. Best case scenario, I believe every child deserves a mother and a father. But I said, if there's a kid who doesn't have much shot at a mama and a daddy, if there's a kid that apart from somebody stepping in the the gap for them, that probably means death for them, I said, then maybe a fluffy older Bible teaching woman in Middle Tennessee would be a better option than death. And not long after that, someone called me and explained that she worked with women who were uh, worked in solicitation 
and that one of the young prostitutes that uh, she was working with had gotten pregnant from one of her johns and by the grace of God had decided she didn't want to abort the baby, but she wanted to keep the baby. And she said, Lisa, I, I sense God telling me that you were supposed to be this, this little girl's mom. And she said, this is going to be really messy because she's a hardcore crack addict. I don't even know how we'll walk through the process, but will you pray about this? And I was like, yeah, I'd, I will. That sounds right to me. There's nobody else lining up to be in this story. And so this was 2011, fall 2011. I committed to do life with this precious young prostitute who had gotten pregnant uh, gotten pregnant by the same John who broke her jaw, a very low-rent uh, young woman. And when I met her and started doing life with her, I just fell in love with this kid. Her backstory, you can't imagine how hard her backstory was, but she was young enough to be my daughter. And so I thought, I'm supposed to do life with her because I'm supposed to love this young mama. And the doctors told us it was just so unlikely that she would actually carry the baby to term because of her drug abuse, because of her past history. She was 82 pounds when she got pregnant. And so the doctor told me, I understand you're a woman of faith, you know, just keep praying. I was like, I will. Um, And I spent the next five months with this young woman. I spent Christmas in a crack house that year. Um, I got in trouble with local law enforcement because I I probably shouldn't tell y'all this, but I just feel so free with this open air. Um, now I've already confessed about my whole toe thing. <laughs> I was at the crack house and it was Christmas and there's a knock at the door and the little girl I was working with told me she knew which which man had come to to visit her. And I knew he had five kids and was a plumber. And just something rose up in me. Y'all, I'm not normally a fighter. I've had to go to therapy to learn how to say no. But just something rose up in me that I am so sure a married man would come to a crack house to have relations with a seventh, seven-month pregnant young woman who has, who has developmental problems, is, is mentally disabled. I thought, I just, I just can't stand by for this. And so I went to the door. (laughs) When the door swung open, he said, hey. And I said, hey. I said, are you here to see Marie? And he goes, I am, unless you're partying tonight. I guess he thought the new girl was, you know, a little well-spoken and brassy. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm I'm actually not partying. I'm, I'm here to stay with Marie. And I said, isn't your name Larry? And he just went. Uh, uh, and I said, don't you have five children at home? And he started backing up and then just, I got real brave y'all. I'm not sure it was the Holy spirit. It could have been caffeine and carbs, but I basically chased him to his van telling him what a stinker he was. And the next day I was at a store where I would get food from Marie and this guy came up who was a plain, plain clothes detective for the Florida Bureau of Investigation and told me that he was like, they'd been watching that house for a long time because it's a major hub of, hub of drug trafficking. He was like, ma'am, 
you cannot chase Johns across the front yard. You're really going to get hurt. So I got in a little bit of trouble with law enforcement for being too brassy. But I I got to the point in that adoption story that I thought, I cannot believe God is going to do this. I mean, against all odds, she made it to the third trimester. Now, I told everybody that I'm friends with, y'all don't give me any baby showers. Don't do anything like that because this adoption journey is so tumultuous. It's, it's, it's really going to be just a miracle if I get to bring this baby home. So don't throw me any baby showers. I don't want any gifts. Just pray. Pray for Marie's salvation. Pray the baby will, will stay in her womb until, until she's viable. And um, Marie had allowed me to name the baby girl. I went to every doctor's appointment, and um, I named her Anna because I love the story of Anna, also in Luke's gospel, who waited so long to meet Jesus. And I thought, I'm going to name her Anna. And we got to where it was a week before the baby was due. And four days before the baby was due, I was getting the nursery painted, and I got a phone call from my adoption agent. And she said, Lisa, I have got such incredible news. She said, every single entity that had to sign off on this, everybody has signed off. She said, you're the only person legally allowed to bring Anna home from the hospital on Thursday. So she said, I just called to tell you, you can just praise God and relax because it is a done deal. And I sank down on my couch. I live in a little cottage in Nashville, Tennessee, and just sobbed. Because you know how when you've been carrying like what feels like a heavy burden up a steep hill and you finally get to set it down, you just feel overwhelmed. Just sat down on the couch and sobbed out of, I cannot believe this has come to pass. I can't believe God has done this. I can't believe I'm finally going to have a family of my own. I'm going to have a little girl that she's made it. I've gotten Marie set up to go into a rehab facility where she wasn't even going to have to pay for two years of residential treatment. I mean, everything was going so well. And I, I called my mom and we just started crying because you know how women are. It's like when it's joy, estrogen festival, tears happen. And then I called a few best friends, and then I realized my doorbell was ringing. And I went to the front door, and it was a UPS guy, and he had this huge box. And I opened the box. It was from a friend of mine in Atlanta, and she said in her note, I know you told us not to give you gifts, but she said, Lisa, I know, like I know my name, that you're bringing Anna Price home from the hospital. And she said, "Um, I saw this in a store window in Atlanta, and it reminded me of the promise I believe God is making over your family, that the... The past is going to be completely redeemed by God. And it was a tiny white miniature fur coat um, because she said she just thought there would be redemption. So Atlanta. Um, And I just sat back down the couch and cried again because nobody's ever given me a fur. And uh, then the phone rang maybe two hours after I got the first phone call from my adoption agent. I saw it was her again. And I went, hey, Angie. I thought she was going to tell me I just had forgotten to fill in some form or needed to scan something else to the state. But as soon as I heard her voice, I realized it wasn't good news. And I am not at liberty legally to even tell y'all what happened. But the bottom line is the bottom fell out of our adoption story. And four days before I was supposed to bring my baby girl home, everything fell apart. And I sat back down on the couch after finding out I had no legal recourse. And I felt like I had been stabbed through the heart with a poker. I just thought, Lord, it has been so stinking 
long. I don't know if I can do this anymore. Do you know that's the most often asked question in the Bible? How much longer? How much longer do we have to endure this? How much longer do I live bent? How much longer do I live separated from my family? How much longer do I push through in this marriage where I feel like there's no love left between us? How much longer? I don't know how long I sat there on the couch and cried, but I definitely felt like God had called the wrong girl for this part. I thought, why don't you, like, give this to Beth Moore, you know? She's blonde and perky and has a high metabolism. Or you choose Priscilla Shire, get somebody who has more faith. But, Lord, you know me. You know, this is the first time I felt myself start to stand up at watching your hand in this. I can't do this. I can't walk this out. Maybe 30 minutes after Angie told me I'd lost the adoption at the 11th hour, the phone rang again. I saw it was my mom on caller ID. And I thought, oh, goodness gracious. I don't have the, the emotional wherewithal to tell my mama I just lost the baby. It's going to be my mom's first granddaughter. She has three grandsons. And I thought, I don't even know how to explain this to my mom. And then I thought, if I don't answer the phone, she'll just keep calling back. And I don't know if your mamas are like this, but if I don't call back after a while, she'll call 911. And so I thought, let me just as fast as I can explain to her what happened. And I said, hey, mama. And she didn't even recognize the sorrow in my voice. She just very quickly said, honey, I'm really sorry to call you with such bad news on such a celebratory day. But I just got off the phone with my surgeon and, you know, we thought I had just a, a bladder infection. She said, I just found out I have stage four appendiceal cancer. And the prognosis is really, really bad. And, honey, I'm scared. I need you to pray for me. And so I didn't even tell her in that phone call we had lost Anna Price. I just started praying for my mom. About 15 minutes later, the phone rang again. It was my dad, my dad who had left us when I was five years old. My parents had an incredibly acrimonious divorce, uh, no love lost between my mom and my daddy. Hadn't really spoken for 40 years. And so dad didn't know, of course, what had just happened with mom. And he didn't know I'd lost the baby. And I thought, oh, golly, Lord, I don't, I don't have anything left. I don't feel like I'm going to be able to peel myself back up off the pavement. And now you've got dad calling me. So I kind of steeled myself and I said, hey, daddy. And he said, honey, I'm sorry to bother you. My dad was a small man, but kind of always seemed like a miniature John Wayne put himself through college, busting Bronx in the rodeo, huge belt buckle, little man. And he said, baby, I'm sorry to bother you, but I just, uh, I just left scans with my doctor. He, my dad had battled colon cancer five years before, successfully or so we thought. And he said, honey, the cancer's back. It's metastasized to my lungs and to my bones. And he said, uh, Dr. Singh just gave me uh, two months to live. And he said, I'm not scared. I know exactly where I'm going. Um, my dad had come to faith later in his life. He said, I know exactly where I'm going, but um, I, I don't know how to explain this to your sister. So I wanted to have you pray for me, and then I want you to call your sister and explain this to your sister. And I prayed for my daddy, and I got off the phone. And y'all, I can remember thinking, I can't do this. I mean, I can't. I can't do this. This is too much. I can't do this. I can't hang on to faith. I can't crawl with faith. I can't do this. 
All I wanted to do was go to bed with Ben and Jerry and stay there for a long, long time. And I thought, I can't do this. I don't know how long I was on the couch. I remember after a while, I remember thinking, oh, goodness gracious, I've got to pack because I've got a 6 a.m. flight because I'm going to a conference for ministry leaders in Kansas City and they already gave me the theme of my message. I'm supposed to speak about the faithfulness of God. And I thought, Lord, you've got to be kidding. I'm not sure I can walk, much less talk about how faithful you are. I didn't sleep that night. Um, this was now March of 2012. And I don't remember the drive to the airport. I remember the flight was really awkward. I didn't want to make small talk on the way to Kansas City. But I also remember walking across a stage and stand in front of a podium with my Bible and looking out at a group of people like you, a bunch of faith leaders. And you know, it was not at all difficult to say our God is faithful because by that point, I looked back over my life and I thought, I've never seen God's back. I've seen grief. I've seen some dark valleys and some really, really lonely seasons but I've never experienced God's absence. Two weeks later, I was in a hospital waiting room in Orlando, Florida, waiting for the surgeon to tell us if Mama had made it through the surgery. They told us she had a 50-50 chance of surviving the surgery. So my sister and I were in the waiting room praying, kind of on pins and needles. And he called us in the waiting room, and he said, I've got great news. He said, we got most of your mother's cancer. He said, she will not die from this cancer. What little we didn't get is very slow growing. He said, your mama is, is going to survive. My sister and I were so excited. About a half a day later, we were in surgical intensive care, standing over mama. She was having a really hard time coming out of uh, the anesthesia. And that same surgeon called me, and he said, Lisa, he said, the surgery was successful. But evidently, your mama's body was so weakened by the cancer that her numbers are declining rapidly. And he said, if her numbers don't turn around within the next 12 hours, we're going to lose your mother. Your mother's going to die. And he said, now, I understand you to be a woman of faith. And so I just called to tell you <clears throat> that now would be the time to pray. So my sister and I were standing there right after we got off the phone. My mom kind of stirred. And they'd just taken out the intubation tube so she could only whisper. And she motioned for me to lean over, and she said, I need to see your father. And I looked at my sister because my stepfather had died the year before. And we assumed she was talking about my stepfather because that's who she'd been married to for 38 years. And I thought she was just so addled from the morphine that she didn't remember he had passed away. My sister looked at me and she went, you tell her, because I've always been the windbag in the family. And so I leaned back over Mama and as gently as I could explained to her, Mama, Daddy's, Daddy's not with us. Remember last November, Daddy died. And my Mama said, not that father. And I looked at my sister. We were both just stunned. She and my father hadn't spoken in 40 years. And she said, she Dad, like daddy daddy and I was like that's what she says and so we stepped out, outside of her hospital room and I called my, my dad Harper miniature John Wayne the one who was only supposed to live for two, two months and 
And I said, Daddy, you know, Mama's just come out of surgery. And he said, yeah, your sister told me. And I said, well, Daddy, the doctor just told us that it um, there's a real strong chance she's not going to make it, that her numbers are declining. And I said, Dad, she's, she's asking for you. And there's this long pause on the phone. And then my daddy said, all right, I'll be there in about an hour. About an hour later, here comes my little daddy walking down the hospital corridor, little John Wayne, a little bit weakened by the chemo, but tough nonetheless. And he comes up to my sister and I. We're standing outside my mom's hospital room. And he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. And you stay right here. Your mom and I need some privacy. And he just blows past us into Mama's room. And I looked at my sister and I said, we're about to be on Jerry Springer. Um, because I thought, oh, my goodness, like he's going to go in and put a pillow over it. I mean, what is going to happen? Well, he's in the room with Mom for about 20 minutes. We were so anxious outside the room, wondering what was going on. He comes walking out after about 20 minutes, and he goes, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. Your mother's going to be fine. I'll be back here same time tomorrow. Turns and just strides off. We go flying in her room expecting to find her unplugged. And she's sitting up in bed with color in her face. And the first thing my mom said to me was, Honey, your father anointed me with oil. I'm going to be fine. And I thought they're giving her that medicinal pot or regular pot if you're in Colorado. I thought there's, there's no way. I mean, there's no stinking way my mother can go from almost death to color in her cheeks but she did. Y'all, they released her from the hospital a few days later. She's now 83. She walks six miles a day. It's just unbelievable what God did, but that wasn't even the biggest miracle. The biggest miracle was that from that day forward, in early April of 2012, until my daddy died, February 7th, 2013, my mother and my father were together every single day. Not a renewed romance, just this deep, deep friendship. I didn't think even God could mend that kind of gap. My mother was the very last person sitting with my father before he went to be in the arms of Jesus. He had made us put him in fresh pajamas and we didn't want to turn him because he had so many wires. And And I said, Daddy, you, your pajamas are fine. And he said, I want new pajamas and I want my slippers. He said, I don't want to be dancing on streets of gold barefoot. It's one of the last things he said coherently. Mom was the last person with him before he died. I never thought I'd see a redemptive miracle like that in our family. While Mama was in recovery, I got a phone call from a friend I hadn't seen in years. And she said, Lisa, I know you're grieving an adoption loss. I heard about you losing Anna Price four days before you were supposed to bring her home. But I just got home from Haiti last night. And she said, while I was in Haiti, I was in a small village, and a young mom died of AIDS, undiagnosed AIDS, didn't even know she had AIDS. And she left behind a two-year-old little girl. There's no daddy. He died of AIDS before even knowing she was pregnant. And he said, um, she said that the doctors in Port-au-Prince have said this little girl only has two months left to live because she has HIV and tuberculosis and cholera a lot of other ancillary issues. And she said, while we were sitting in the ER, she said, and I'm looking at this little girl that they're, they're saying is going to die in two months. She said, God spoke to me. And I heard him, he may as well have said it audibly, I heard in my spirit him say, Lisa Harper is supposed to be this little girl's mother. And she said, I know you're grieving. I don't know if you even have the bandwidth to pray about this. But she said, I can't not 
ask you, because God made it so clear to me, would you be willing to pray about stepping into the adoption process with this little girl named Missy? And I said, no. No. I said, I'm not willing to pray about it. I said, I've been praying about this for 30 years. Sign me up. Unless y'all think I am in any way more faithful than you. I got off the phone and I said a word that's not in the Bible that rhymes with wit because I thought, oh my, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to adopt a child who's in Haiti who they're telling me is not going to, I don't know how to do this. And I just sensed God saying, Lisa, you don't have to know how to do the whole thing. Just take the next right step. Just move toward me in desperation. Just move toward me and I'll make your steps straight. This woman wasn't wanted in that synagogue, y'all. She didn't fit, but she had gotten to a point of such desperate faith, such a different kind of faith, such a stripped away, pure faith that she was like, I don't care if y'all unfriend me on Facebook. I'm getting as close to Jesus as I can get because my hope lies with him. My daughter is here today. She adores Dr. Howard. She's sleeping because she thinks her mom is a little boring. But she's 11 years old. Against all odds, she is perfectly healthy. We just got her labs last week. Her CD4 count is 1,040. Any of you with a medical background know that is uber healthy. Her immune system is fantastic. The most sensitive tests that test HIV in pediatric in children test 20 parts per million. Missy is undetectable in that test because our God is good. Sometimes we're so bent because all we see is our circumstances. We see COVID. We see a lack of income. We see division in our family. We see divorce. We see disappointment. We see that it feels like our prayers are hitting the ceiling and maybe God didn't really hear us because he's so busy in the Middle East. Y'all, that's not biblically defensible. Our God always sees us. Nothing in our lives is missing from him. He knew when I was on that couch thinking, I'm always going to be alone. He saw me then. I couldn't see his faithfulness. I was too bent. He gave me enough grace to take the next step. It's a desperate kind of faith when people around you tell you, this is not going to work out for you. It's a desperate kind of faith to say, you know what? My Jesus voice is louder than yours. I'm going to keep moving toward Jesus. I'm going to keep believing in this marriage. I'm going to keep believing that my prodigal is going to come home. I'm going to keep believing that God's plans for our family are good. This woman, as she begins to move toward Jesus, is facing just all kinds of of rebuke from that crowd of Jewish men. But Jesus says, daughter, woman, come closer. It's such a beautiful picture of how he never views us as interruptions. But he says, move closer. Come closer to me. And Dr. Luke says, the moment she engages Jesus, immediately she stands up straight. That's my hope as a mother. That's my hope as a daughter. That's my hope as a sister to you, a fellow Christ follower, is that during this season when it seems like the whole world is bent in division 
and disappointment and all kinds of stuff like I've never seen before in my 57 years. That those of us who are moving toward Jesus would stand even straighter, would reflect even more mercy, would be even kinder, and would hang on to the fact that our God is good. When everything around us looks hard and bad, our God is good. He's always good. He's a kind God.